Guidance from the White House a couple of weeks ago seeks to get more federal employees back to their offices. It's a big data-gathering exercise, and my next guest says it's got some problems. Bob Tobias is a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University, and he joins me now. And Bob, I'm getting the sense you think that that's not such a worthy goal in and of itself, simply to get more fannies in federally funded seats. Now, if you're a landlord or a restaurant owner in a city where there are a lot of federal employees, you want more fannies in the seats. But if you're a taxpayer, you don't care whether fannies are in the seats. You care whether federal employees are actually delivering the public service that you want and that you demand. And we know that 60% of the federal employees working at home during the max telework period during the pandemic delivered the same or better public service than they delivered while they were in person before the pandemic. And we know that federal employees prefer their current work situation of primarily working from home. So if they are required to come into the workplace, I believe that they'll have less motivation and deliver less public service than they're delivering today. And we also know that collecting data about whether public service is declining takes six months or a year. And if, in fact, it's true that public service will decline, the damage will have been done too late to fix it. Well, let's talk about the three criteria that the Office of Management and Budget laid out for this, because it sounds like you have different goals here that aren't totally compatible to try to somehow balance in the analysis they're asking agencies to do. So they're asking agencies to balance organizational health and work environment, organizational performance, and community needs. So the first two are really about organizational performance. So if I'm going to deliver more organizational performance based on what's happened in the past, I have to have people working from home. If I'm going to focus on community needs, I have to have more people in person. Right. And that idea of organizational health and the work environment, those are fuzzy words. I guess you can look at the best places to work scores. You can look at the turnover. You can look at the rate at which you can fill open positions and how long that takes. Is that the kind of thing you sense they mean by organizational health? I do. I think really organizational health and organizational performance are really linked. If organizational health is good, the scores are going up, turnover is down, then organizational performance will indeed be increased. And we also know, Tom, that the federal government is having a real tough time recruiting Gen Z and retaining Gen X employees, the people who are really at the highest levels of the career service. So for example, Gen Z who were born between 1997 and 2012, and they're just entering the workplace, 9.1% of the total workforce are Gen Zs, but only 1.7% of the federal workforce. And then once we get these Gen Zs on the federal payrolls, they leave at a 12.4% turnover rate, and the rest of the turnover is 6.7%. So it's hard to recruit them hard to keep them. And a recent report by the Partnership for Public Service say these folks, more than any other people in the workplace, want to be in person. So if we can't advertise that these jobs 
are hybrid jobs and must be in person, we're not going to be able to get these folks into the workplace, and we desperately need them. We're speaking with Bob Tobias, professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. It seems like the workforce is bifurcating into people that have to be in the field, law enforcement folks and zookeepers and you name it, agricultural service agents and so on. And then there are those who had been in the office for decades and now don't need to be in the office because of the technology in place that lets people work remotely. And is that a danger, having two workforces, one never in the office and one always in the quote-unquote office or field location? I don't think it's a problem. If we focus on service to the public and organizing the workplace in a way that maximizes service to the public, And what I think with this new policy from the Biden administration, we increase the risk of decreasing public service, which ought be the focus of any president of the United States. For people that came to work in government or anywhere else during the pandemic and never really got to the office, and maybe you're only getting there part-time now, do you think that we're doing a disservice to that Generation Z? They think they know what they want, but they're still kind of young and stupid and don't know the value of connections with colleagues older and younger and the same age and the value that that kind of connection can generate and the kind of collaboration that can happen in person. Do you think we owe them a little bit more than simply caving into the fact that they don't want to come to an office? I'm playing devil's advocate here. (laughs) You know, I think it is important that the people who work together ought to have connections with each other. But that ought to be a focus of a supervisor or higher level agency officials. And that can be done consciously and intentionally with infrequent office visits, as opposed to before the pandemic, it was random. And sometimes it happened for some people, and sometimes it didn't happen for some people. So this might be an opportunity to really focus on the importance of making connections and consciously do it rather than relying on random connections. And that's true, too, because sometimes the random connections are terrible. People can bore you to death or distract you or eat sardines next to you and this kind of thing. So there's that kind of Dilbert office effect that nobody wants, I guess. That's exactly right. So a more intentional workplace in terms of creating connections, a more intentional workplace focusing on delivery of public service is what we really want. And do you think that this policy just came out because the pressure was on the administration to do something? Because they've got cities, they've got mayors, they've got business groups saying, get your people back and occupy those buildings. But they can't really find a good justification for forcing that for a variety of reasons. It's not, as you say, great for the workforce. And the work was getting done just fine, maybe better in some cases, because of the mass telework. Well, my hope is that people who lead federal employees will discover and say that their focus must be on delivering service. And there's certainly ways to do that. And I hope that's how it finally shakes out. Yeah, because the real estate is a funny question. I was in San Francisco a couple weekends ago, and the biggest building there now is the Salesforce Tower. It just has changed the skyline that we traditionally remember about San Francisco. And that building, I think, is almost totally empty because the company with the name on the skyline has moved out. And so you've got this phenomenon in cities. You do. 
And I think the latest statistics I saw that both Washington, D.C. and San Francisco have about a 50 percent in-person occupancy rate, the lowest of any cities in the country. So certainly it is a problem for real estate agents and owners and for small business restaurants. But for the rest of the taxpayers, I think the decision is clear, and that is to have a highly motivated federal workforce. Bob Tobias is a professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost 
incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with him about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept 
me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.